I, uh, I, got, I had a lunch meeting on Thursday, and I had a little bit of time. It was close to the house, so I stopped by, uh, parked in front of the house, and I, I saw Laura there doing yard work. She has Thursdays off, and I noticed that she was, she was obviously upset, and I, and I knew why. And uh, she had been looking uh, on her phone, reading some articles about the, the shooting on Thursday, or the shooting on Tuesday, excuse me, and looking through face after face, student after student, teacher. And uh, she just, just broke down, sobbed, because we have a second grader in the house. And in an instant, you can just replace one of those faces with Cecile or any other child in this, this congregation. And, you know, wanting to be a faithful husband, you know, here I am a pastor. I had no words. I didn't know what to say. And I just sat there, stood there with her, embraced her, and, and wept and cried. And in the midst of that time, I realized something powerful, and that is we were worshiping. We were worshiping through a language, and that language is the language of lament, which is all throughout the Scripture. Heavily in the Psalms, also in the book of Lamentation, also in the prophets, the language of lament God gives his people voice in the time of devastating sorrow when they have no voice, when they have no words to put together to describe what's going on. God gives us, his people, a voice through the songs of sorrow in the scriptures, through the songs of lament. They're a resource to us, a treasure for us. No matter where you're at, no matter what you've gone through, there is a prayer, there is a song that you can identify with in the scripture, particularly in the Psalms that give voice to your pain. Some 3,000 years ago, brothers and sisters found solace in the Psalms. Their songbook, the Psalter, the book of Psalms is a songbook of God's people throughout the generations. And I want to encourage us all, in this time where we try to make sense of the events of our world, we try to express our sorrow, which is a healthy thing to do, turn to the Psalms. Turn to the songs of lament in the scripture. And you find a voice, uh, you find a vent for your soul in the laments of the Bible. And so this morning, we're going to step out of our current sermon series in the book of Acts and step into a psalm of lament, Psalm 13. And I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 13 with me. In the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find Psalm 13 on page 453. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we love to give Bibles away. So in the lobby, there's three bookcases on your right-hand side, the third one closest to the restrooms. There are hardback black Bibles. You're welcome to take one of those as a gift. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 allows us to lament. It allows us to express the sorrow in the deep recesses of our souls, to make sense of our situation, to worship God in the midst of it all. Psalm 13 was written by the most renowned king in Israel's history, King David, who knew lots of sorrow. A 40-year reign, maybe had three years of peace. Maybe had three years of peace in those 40 years as king. So Psalm 13 is a lament. And like I said, you can think of a lament like a vent. It's rhyme, so you can remember it. It's a vent for your soul. A way to express intense, unrestrained emotion to God. Questions to God. Frustration with God. And God is able to handle all of it. He shames us not as we share it before him. He welcomes it, no matter the intensity, no matter the the question, no matter the depth of sorrow. He welcomes our lamenting. And in Psalm 13, David is in the doldrums of despair. His ability to endure is fading. He's on the precipice of giving up, and yet he leans into the Lord. A pastor and lawyer from New England, William Plumer, late 18th century, early 19th century, born in Newburyport, right up on the North Shore, wrote this of the Psalms. The trials of God's people throughout the ages are so uniform that the same laments and songs found in the Psalms suit every successive generation. What he's saying is that the Psalms apply today, every successive generation. They're a treasure trove for God's people who find solace and a voice in the Psalms. So grasp the resources of the Psalms in times of sorrow. Speak the language of lament in times of unspeakable tragedy. Now, we're not sure the circumstances surrounding this psalm. David endured lots of sorrow. Perhaps this is when his predecessor, King Saul, who was insanely jealous of David, hunted him for years. David hid in the caves. He hid in Philistine cities. Perhaps this is one of those moments where he was hunted by King Saul. Perhaps... It was from his wayward and wicked son, Absalom, who sought to dethrone David. Perhaps it was a physical malady, an experience of sickness. We don't know. It doesn't matter because the songs of lament apply comprehensively to situations of sorrow. What we see here is David leaning into the Lord through this lament, regardless of the origin of his sorrow. He knew many of them. Six verses, three parts. Six verses to this psalm in three parts. First, we see a desperate cry, verses one and two. 
a desperate cry. And then we see a humble request, verses 3 and 4. And finally, we see a declaration of faith, verses 5 and 6. Six verses grouped in three parts. A desperate cry, a humble request, and a declaration of faith. Let's look at the first part, a desperate cry. We see this fourfold repetition of a question to God. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Four times. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Repetition in the Bible is the ancient author's means of underlining, highlighting, bolding. It creates emphasis. So that fourfold repetition encapsulates David's desperation. How long, O oh Lord? It's not a means of seeking information from God. Rather, it's a means of expressing emotion to God. He's not looking for days and times and months and, and, and time frames. He's not seeking information from God. He's expressing emotion to God. And the Lord welcomes all of it. He invites David and us to lament, to vent to him, and express the depth of our sorrow to him. Isn't that good news that God welcomes our sorrow and our grief, and he gives us a voice when we have none? He provides us words when we don't have them. Let's take a look at the content of David's questions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I wonder if you've asked that question. This week, oh Lord, have you, have you forgotten? Are you aware of what's going on in my life, in our nation, in this world? Are you aware? Do you care? Is God somehow being absent-minded here? What's going on? What's David expressing? Does God ever forget his people? Never. In fact, you look four Psalms earlier, Psalm 9, verse 12, look there. Just, just go back a few Psalms and see what David says. God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Well, then in here, Psalm, in Psalm 13, David seems to contradict what he said four Psalms earlier. David is not seeking to communicate the truth about God's character here, but rather the truth about his heart here, the truth about his emotions here. He's not making a theological treatise here. It's an emotional vent here. It's a perceived forgetfulness. He feels forgotten by God. So he's not communicating truth about God's character, but rather the truth about his heart. It's good news that God invites us to ask these kinds of questions before him. God invites us to ask why and where are you and what is going on. He can handle that. Ask and keep asking I want to make an important distinction here. There's a difference between venting to God and growing bitter toward God. David is not bitter here. He certainly is asking hard questions. But the difference between venting to God and growing bitter toward God is one of direction, one of trajectory. Because when you're venting to God, what are you doing? 
you're praying, your, your, trajectory, your trajectory is toward him. It's a Godward direction. When you're going, growing bitter, your direction is away from God, ceasing to pray, turning inward on yourself. So there's a key difference here between venting to God and growing bitter toward God. David isn't growing bitter. He's venting. His direction is Godward to God. Friends, do not bottle up your grief. It does not have a good outcome. Release it to God. Vent it to God through resources like songs of lament. I have a, a good friend who many years ago lost his younger brother to cancer. His father for a time served as a pastor. And he shared with me one day how his father, who was somewhat stoic, wanted to be strong for the family in the midst of the grief. And he always wondered why dad never seemed to open up and emote and share his feelings. And one day, a few years later, he watched his father just break in speechless grief. Break. Friends, don't bottle up your grief. Take it to the Lord. Lean into him. Pray to him. Even when you don't have the words, let the songs of the Bible be your words. He's not overwhelmed by our grief. He welcomes it. It's healthy for us to express it to him. So David asks, will you forget me forever? He then asks, how long will you hide your face from me? Does God hide his face from his people? Does God play some twisted mind game of hide and seek in our hour of greatest need? No, he doesn't. But I think we all can agree sometimes it feels like that. It's a perceived hiding. When he's delayed in his response, our prayers seem to fall on deaf ears. Is he hiding? Well, no. Again, David's not communicating truths about his character, but rather the truths of his heart. I love the comprehensiveness and the cohesiveness of the scripture, the interconnectedness of the Bible. As you read it exhaustively, you see how its tentacles are wrapped around each other, the, the cohesiveness of it. The book before the Psalms, Job. We see Job 23, a man who knows what it is to lament before God. Job cries out about the perceived hiddenness of God, the absence, inexplicable absence of his presence. God, where are you? He can't make sense of what God is doing. His children have been tragically killed. All his possessions ransacked. Boils bubble up on his skin. And his wife intended to be his partner. She's no help. She says, Job, curse God and die. Well, how does, how does Job respond? He's thoroughly de devastated. Well, what does he do? He doesn't curse God and die. He leans into God like David. He cries out to God. He speaks of his perceived feeling of forsakenness, the hiddenness of God. Job 23, verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find you, O God. 
Do you hear his heart? Where are you, O God? What are you doing? Oh, that I might know where you are. Verse 8, behold, I go forward, but God, you're not there. I go backward, but you're not there either. Where are you? Do you hear him? It's the perceived hiddenness of God. In his darkest hour, Job can't find God anywhere. He feels forsaken. He doesn't feel God's presence. He calls out to him, but there's no answer. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, it is not sinful to question God's presence, to cry out to him in desperation, to feel like you are forsaken. It is not sinful. The witness of the scripture shows it. We see it here in Job. We see it later with David. We see it even later with our Lord Jesus Christ. As he hangs on the cross, what does Jesus cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows the feeling of being forsaken. And he's able to identify with all of us. He's a great high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our every weakness, including those feelings of forsakenness. Draw near to Jesus in the hour of your own perceived forsakenness. And rest in the bedrock reality of God's care and love and presence for you because it is Jesus' cry at the cross that shows us the depth of God's love for us. The question of whether God loves us or not, whether he's here for us or not, whether he cares about our situation or not, is forever answered yes, a resounding yes, as we look to the cross. Because at the cross, God has taken care of our greatest need. And we need not wonder about his presence, his care, his intervention, because he has worked in the hour of our greatest need. And if he's faithful to work in the greatest need, friends, he will work in his time in the hour of our lesser needs. First, in Psalm 13, we find a desperate cry. Secondly, we see a humble request. David writes in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Well, what is David doing? He's praying. He's making requests, petitions before God to one who is more powerful than him. He's requesting that God intervene in his situation. Friends, prayer before God is that posture of dependence, isn't it? Prayer is the epitome of dependence. The picture of us, God's people, on our knees is a picture of dependence. It is saying, God, we can't do it. We're looking to you, the one who has power to do it. It's a posture of dependence. And it is the healthiest place for God's people to be. It's how we were created to live, in dependence upon God. David is dependent upon God through, through prayer he knows he has nothing. He's bankrupt of power, and so he looks to the one who is all-powerful. Simple observation. When the floor falls out from under, underneath David, what does he do? 
He prays. When the floor falls out from underneath him, he prays. As a matter of first response, he prays. I am troubled when I look at my own knee-jerk reaction in times of trouble. It's often only after exhausting every human self-reliance avenue of help, then I pray. And I want to invite you as a friend, a fellow struggler in prayer, to pray first, to depend on God. It's the healthiest position that we can be in, on our knees before God, admitting our need, looking to him, the one who is sufficient to meet us where we're at. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He then says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, enliven me. David feels as if he's the walking dead. His troubles and sorrows are so heavy, he feels as if he's a dead person walking, and he says, enliven me, light up my eyes, which is an expression, give me life. Let light shine forth from me. Let your joy, your cheer radiate from me to the people around me, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He knows that apart from God's grace, God's presence, he would perish. He understands his life is but a vapor. He's dependent upon God and all power for God. And so he humbly prays. He depends upon God through, through prayer. Friends, dependence upon God through prayer is the source of light and life. Dependence upon God through prayer is the source of light in the midst of darkness, life in the midst of what seems to be death, dependence upon God, clinging to him when you have nothing else. One of my favorite theology professors, Rick Lintz at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, told a story one time of his father-in-law passing suddenly. He traveled hours on an airplane to lead the funeral, to officiate the funeral there. He arrived hours before the service. He remembers being in the hotel room, just feeling utterly powerless, bankrupt of the spiritual resources necessary to lead out in a time of sorrow and, and, and sudden loss in their family. And I remember him communicating. He said, as I knelt in the hotel room and came to grips with my powerlessness, I realized it was in that place that I had everything that I needed. Because when we are weak, friends, then we are strong because God's power is made perfect in our weakness, isn't it? God often brings us to the very ends of ourselves to find the beginning of his strength. When we are weak, then we are strong because his power is made perfect in our weakness. We were created to live dependent lives upon God, and it is folly to be impressed with your own strength. The invitation of God in the gospel is to come to him. It's the opposite of the root of our sin. Genesis 3, what did Adam and Eve do? They moved away from God. They sought to be independent from him, to be the masters of their own domain. And the call of the gospel, through the provision of Jesus Christ, is to turn back to God, to admit your need, to receive his means of forgiveness, depend upon him, 
for forgiveness and restored relationship. Walk with him in a relationship of dependence. Every day I struggle to pray, to be dependent. Every day I struggle with being impressed with my own strength. And God tenderly draws me back to himself. You need me, Dane. We need God. David asks for this compelling luster of God's presence and grace to come and shine through him, to light up his eyes, that his enemies may not gloat over him and make a mockery of him. Verse 4, lest my foes malign you because I'm shaken. David prays that God would steady his wobbly knees before his enemies for God's name's sake. Why is he doing that? David sees God's reputation on the line for his name's sake. David is the servant of the Lord, and he wants to stand before his enemies in faith, not in fear. He's concerned about the reputation of God. For your name's sake, light up my eyes so that I might shine it forward to my enemies. And I know this is hard, but what do we do in the face of great fear, in times of mass shootings and tragedy? The temptation is to live your life cowering in fear and trepidation. That's what our enemy wants us to do. But God says, follow me by faith. Follow me by faith. Let me light up your life, shining it to a dark world. Yes, they may take our lives, but no one, no one can steal your soul belonging with me. Let me stand firm, not with wobbly eyes, but before a fallen and wicked world, but to stand with strength. Not in fear, but in faith. David prays for strength that God's name and his reputation might be seen through David and his resolve in the time of sorrow and mockery. So a desperate cry, a humble request, thirdly and finally, a declaration of faith. Notice what he says in verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. That is one of the richest words in the Bible. God's steadfast, unfailing love, his loyal love, his covenant love. God promises to never leave his people. He says, you will be my people, and I will be your God. Nothing can separate us from him. It is unfailing, loyal love. It cannot be taken. I read in Soren's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, says it like this, God's never-ending, never-stopping, unbreaking, always and forever love. Over and over and over again, it's in the Bible. God will not fail his people. His love cannot be stripped away. Well, how does God show his love to David? Notice what he says in verse 5, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. God shows his love to David through the gift of salvation. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So in the midst of his pain, David remembers God's character. He's a savior. He's a deliverer. He's proven in history his power to save. So David is hearkening back to the Exodus, the pinnacle of God's saving work 
In the Old Testament, God delivers his people from bondage in Egypt. They were dead on the shores of the Red Sea, and he makes a way where, there's, where there was no way. Takes them through the Red Sea, crushes their foes, takes them to safety. He's hearkening back, and that exodus points to a greater deliverance that will happen later in the Bible. It foreshadows the greatest exodus, freedom from the greatest bondage, and that is a spiritual bondage to sin that Jesus Christ will accomplish in the new exodus. David knows that God has promised through his lineage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, a forever king, an eternal king who will come and reign victorious forever and ever and ever. David looked forward to God's promise. We now look back to God's promise fulfilled in Christ. The object of our faith is the same. David anticipated him. We now look back to him. It's the forever king in the lineage of David. David knows that God's a savior. He's proven it in the past, and he knows there's a promise in the future that's coming. And he's come, Jesus, and he's coming again to restore all things. His hope is in God's saving character. Friends, put your hope in God's saving character. He is a savior. And if you trust in him, his provision of his son, Jesus Christ, his atoning death in your place on a cross, his burial and his resurrection from the grave, you're his child. You're forgiven. Nothing can separate you. And he's coming again for you and for his bride, the church, and he will restore all things. He will right every wrong. Every sad thing will be undone. And we will have all the more love for him having gone through the tragedy. Tim Keller writes, okay, why do we go through these situations? Why do we go through tragedy? One way, one reason is to grow in us an appreciation for who God is and what his power is. He likens it to this illustration. Have you ever woken up from a nightmare? One that you've lost a loved one, a, a parent or a child or a close friend. And then you realize it was just a nightmare. And you cherish that person all the more, having gone through the nightmare itself, having experienced seemingly close to what it would be like to lose. You, you cherish that person all the more. And so it is with God one day when he comes back, all the heartache will pale in comparison and will, in fact, help us love the Lord and appreciate him all the more for what he's done. He has dealt bountifully with David, and friends, he's dealt bountifully with us. This is where David ends this psalm. He has dealt bountifully with me. The NIV says, he has been good to me. So in the midst of heartache and sorrow, what does David do? He remembers the past faithfulness of the Lord, the gifts of the Lord, how God has been good to him, no matter the heartache. Remember the faithfulness of God. So can I ask you, how has God been good to you this week? In the midst of unspeakable tragedy, how has God been good to you this week? What has he provided for you? How has he supplied your needs, shelter, food, clothing, friendship, church family, and most especially salvation and security forever with him? He has been exceedingly good. Remember how he's dealt bountifully with you. Remember his goodness. Remember the gospel, the pinnacle expression of his goodness. That while you and I were sinners, dead in sin, God made us alive by sending 
Christ. Remember his, the extent of his love for you. This is good news. This is where David concludes. Notice the journey he goes on. A cry of desperation, a request for help, a declaration of faith. He's gone through this journey, hasn't he, where he's ended standing solidly on the goodness of the Lord, the saving works of the Lord. That's where he ends. Friends, that's where we must end. In the midst of our sorrow, stand firm on the solid ground of salvation, the goodness of the Lord, the finest expression of his faithfulness. That's where David lands. Now, as we close, I want to offer a few thoughts on how you care for people in the midst of deep heartache. I am your pastor, one of your elders, one of five elders. Our role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to do all the ministry. God has strategically placed you in our church family to equip you to care for people in the midst of their spiritual need. And some of those spiritual needs are heartache, especially in weeks like these when we see people tragically killed outside of a grocery store because of the color of their skin or tragically killed in a school. How do you minister to people in the midst of heartache? Let me offer just five simple suggestions to care for people in the midst of heartache. Be with the person. Be with the person. It's the ministry of presence. Oftentimes, we feel the pressure of speaking in times of heartache. But frankly, too many words are counterproductive. I didn't have words with Laura. I didn't even know what to say, but I was with her. And I put my arm around her, and we just cried. Be with the person. Feel no pressure to say a bunch of words. The ministry of presence. Sit with them. Number two, pray with the person. And it is okay if you fumble and bumble through those words. You know what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we cannot speak ourselves. With groanings that we cannot utter, the Holy Spirit makes sense of the fumbling and the bumbling and makes it clear to God the Father. The Spirit intercedes for us. It's okay. Just pray. Pray with the person. Number three, Read with the person. Open up to Psalm 13 and read. The word is like a healing balm on a wound. Read the word with friends in heartache. Be with the person. Pray with the person. Read with the person. Cry with the person. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Weep with those who weep. The power of shared grief. We are the body of Christ. And God has so designed it that, that our spiritual nerve endings grow into one another such that one person feels sorrow, so does the other. Weep with people in the hour of sorrow. Feel no shame in your tears. I've shared some of this story uh, before, but nine years ago I faced a situation unlike anything I had before. I found myself in a car driving to Logan Airport to drop off one of my best friends to tend to a situation in his family of utter, utter, utter tragedy. He called me. He said, Dane, I need help. So I got in my CRV. I picked him up. We went to the airport. 
I'm literally in flip-flops and a tank, a tee. And as we're about to drop him off, I, I just, I, I, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was, Dane, you need to get, get out of the car, park it in short-term parking or whatever, and, and, and go get on the plane. So I got on the plane, bought a ticket, got on the plane. We sat next to each other on the plane, two-hour ride. We just opened up the Psalms, Psalm 13, Psalm 88, Psalm 23. I just read the Psalms, and I prayed, and we wept. He lost his son. We wept, we read the Psalms, we prayed. And God was there, and God works in it. How do we care for people in heartache? Be with the person, pray with the person, read with the person, cry with the person. Fifthly, point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the most powerful ways we can do that is to help them see that Jesus wept. The shortest verse in all the Bible, two words, Jesus wept. John 13, verse 35, what does that tell us? Jesus feels the pain of loss. His good buddy Lazarus has died. Jesus weeps over the death of Lazarus. Before he resurrects Lazarus, he weeps over the tragedy of the loss of Lazarus. He knows your suffering. He weeps with you, finds solace in his tears that stream down his face. And never forget, as he hung on the cross, he shed tears for you and for me in the midst of our greatest need, in the midst of his greatest sorrow expressed for us at the cross, he loves us. No matter our circumstances, look to the cross. He loves us. He's there with us. Point people to this Savior. He is their greatest need. He is our greatest need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort that we find in it. You have comforted us so that we might go and comfort others. God, I pray that you would bind us up together. God, that we would lean into you, that we would lament before you in these hours of great sorrow. You would strengthen us, you would enliven us, and send us out to a world that is hurting to a world that is desperate for you, O oh God, in need of your Son. Help us to faithfully point people to you for the glory of your name and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.